This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is the actress Sophie Rundle. Her career began with a bang when she landed the role of Ada Shelby in the hit drama Peaky Blinders, straight out of drama school. Since then, she's gone on to star in Sally Wainwright's Gentleman Jack, Alibi's The Diplomat, and most recently, ITV's After the Flood. In this episode, we talk about how revolutionary Gentleman Jack was in depicting LGBTQ love stories, and how it has been heralded for its portrayal of sex scenes. Sophie discusses her own experience filming intimate scenes and how they have changed over the course of her career. You are a completely different professional when you're new in the industry. Of course you are, because you're inexperienced and you don't have a body of work behind you, you don't have experience behind you, you don't know the rules, so you are much more... You kind of, you are more naive, you are more willing to say yes, because you don't know. So I don't know if it was just that or if what happened kind of what happened to me in the middle of the, the last sort of 10 years of my career was the Me Too movement and that kind of changed everything and changed the whole conversation. So jobs that I did before that and jobs that I did after that look very, very different. Plus, we discuss how Peaky Blinders changed her life and the pressure she faces to look a certain way on screen. Sophie Rundle, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're going to go everywhere in this conversation, but first and foremost, we start with your viewing habits. So talk me through your living room setup. What is the view from your sofa? Okay, so the view from our sofa is just television. We have the most obnoxiously large massive tv on our wall and i was really against it when my partner was it's like a 75 inch or something and he we went to costco and he's like we've got to get this telly and i was like no that's that's obscene that's too big and he won me over and do you know what i love it it's enormous and now i can never go back so we just have this huge tv which is amazing for watching movies it's a bit of an eyesore but we have a big schlumpy sofa lots of other chairs dotted around we watch a lot of movies in our house so it's totally geared up for that and what about settees is it a big sofa snuggly yeah it's very it's very squishy it's now kind of gone in in the, t- the two <laughs> places where we sit it's really embarrassing when people come around because it's clearly the shape of our bums um <laughs> but yeah it's all soft cushions we've got armchairs we've got two sofas it's yeah it's it's not one of those posh living rooms with like the sofas facing each other it's totally meant for telly (laughs) what have you enjoyed watching most recently god i was sort of dreading this because you know when your mind goes blank we've watched we watched all of strictly i love strictly i love it so much it's like my favorite thing about this time of year so we watched a lot of that and then we've been watching a lot of movies Mm. i think i find that 
I make a lot of British TV. So sometimes it's a bit of a busman's holiday when I then go to watch it because I know everyone. Yeah. And so, so you kind of try to escape and you're like, oh, that's my mate. Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, they did the costume on this. So we watch a lot of films and then I watch a lot of like old TV. Um, mm. So it's a kind of a bit of a mix of all of that. Who controls the remote in your household between you and your husband, who is also an actor? Yes, he is. He's very, very good at... He's a total cinephile. He knows everything about cinema. And he's always coming back like, okay, we've got to watch this new film or this new film. Or you. He's sort of given me an education in, in cinema history since we've been together. Because before that, I just watched a lot of MGM musicals. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you think you need to branch out? So he's the one that will be like, Trust me, this is what we need to watch today. And then if he is ever out for the evening, that's when I kind of indulge. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures, your comfort telly? My comfort telly is I really like old, old British sitcoms. So The Good Life with Richard Briers and Felicity Kendall and As Time Goes By with Judy Dench and Jeffrey Palmer. If I was ever a mastermind, they would be my subjects. They're like, I don't know what it is about them. That's my comfort telly. Did you grow up watching that? Yeah, I think I did. And I, th- I, th- yeah, I don't know. I think the, the good life, he kind of reminds me of my dad or something. I don't know, but it's really like if I've got a cold or I'm away from home, mm. that's what I'll watch. That lovely, like, 70s kind of aesthetic or like 90s London I don't know I just it's and it's really obscure and I can never find anyone to talk to about it because nobody else seems to have watched (laughs) (laughs) it's It's so neat Um, okay I I also think this is interesting because you said there it's like a busman's holiday do you prefer a period drama or a modern day drama to watch I think I quite like a period drama. I think I do. I quite like the theatre of it. And I love that it, because it, when you're making telly, it's such a collaboration. You know, it's about what everybody is bringing from all different departments. And I love that in a period drama, you can really see it and you can mm. feel it. And I love that it's kind of got a tone to it. And again, yeah, it's that escapism, isn't it? I do love it. I love being like, ooh, what would it have been like to live back then? You know, yeah. so I, I do love a good period drama. I think that's probably one of the pleasures of acting is getting to play in all of these different eras of time. Yeah. And for us watching at home, it's magical to be transported. But I guess also when you wear costumes, A, it will help with the acting in some ways, but B, perhaps quite nice at the end of the day to leave that behind. Yeah, it's like 90% of the acting. That's honestly why I do a lot of period dramas. People are just distracted by your large sleeves. Um, But it is, it is that like, because filming is so stop and start, you know, and you, you have such long days and you come in and you do a bit and then you break and you turn around and you're just chatting away and then you've got to get back into the scene. I love with a period drama, there's this kind of like quick route into it. You know, if you've got, the costume and the set and the light and there's always like they're always like pumping in kind of haze and there's just something about it it does it does feel like dressing up it does just mm. feel like kind of goofing around like when you were a kid and there's there's le- there's less places to hide when it's modern day although what comes mm. with that is that i feel like you can be more natural because you're not having to think about the time and the kind of manner and other affecting factors but i do yeah i do kind of and it is, I think so many actors have that thing of like convinced that they lived at another point in history. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of get to embrace that a little bit. Is there a snack and drink of choice that you go to 
whilst watching telly? Definitely snacks. We kind of have our, we have our dinner, like we like watch a bit of like buffer telly. Do you ever do that? You know, you're like, we need like a bit of filler, like a half an hour mm. filler program so that we can eat our tea and like chat to each other and then go in. I find I can't like start a movie if I'm eating a din, eating my dinner. I like Absolutely. focus on, focus on the telly or focus on my food. But uh, <laughs> you've got to have snacks. I can't, I could never be one of those people that's like sipping a tap water. No, 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 no. Right, let's um, take it back to childhood. So you grew up in Bournemouth. Yes. What's your first TV memory? Do you know what? It's probably EastEnders. That was often just on, sort of, it was on. And I remember, I remember that, that real like 90s era of EastEnders storyline. Mm. And I would sit on the sofa with my mum and dad and we've got two brothers and, you know, people be in and out. And I remember always being like, Oh, so why is that happening? Mm. Why? And because you're a kid, aren't you? You don't understand why people behave the way they do. And oh, kind of, there was like a big court case one. Someone had killed someone. Classic. In East classic. Yeah. And, and I remember saying to him, like, but why, why is he saying that? Why is he doing that? And she would sit and chat to me. And I feel like maybe that's the beginning of it. Because I was so fascinated by who are these people? You these like larger than life characters doing all these interesting things for what reason? So actually... I don't know, maybe that's like right over-egging the custard of what acting is, but <laughs> but I remember that. I remember, and you know, and that kind of like consistency of, mm. of narrative, then you'd be so excited to go back, you yeah. know, in each night. I remember when, I remember the, the night when Tiffany died. Do you remember Martine McCutcheon? You're probably too young. And it was so big and so exciting. We had our friends around and we all sat and watched it. And it was like event telly kind of yeah. before these, before the, banner you know now we've got these huge enormous event television hbo big scale mm. things that compete with with movie and with cinema it was before that you know it was like the whole nation i remember going to like a parents evening at school and the head teacher was saying oh i'll, I'll let everyone get home early because tonight's the night someone min wins a million pounds on who wants to be a millionaire and everyone was really excited about it you know it was oh, like pre-internet yeah. so I'm mean, admitting how old I am. But yeah, it, that kind of like national telly, I remember mm. a lot when I was growing up. And also that talking TV. It's so interesting because I don't watch soaps anymore. But like like you, I, I definitely had that experience of watching it every night. I can't believe my mum used to let me watch it. <laughs> but I still remember ingrained in my memory is an, a scene with Stella, who was the stepmom of Ben, who was married to Phil. And she burnt him with the back of a spoon and oh to this God. day i still think about that i know it was it's really formative, isn't it <laughs> and it's soaps and they go big man so mm. you are like kind of exposed to this stuff it's why they're brilliant you know yeah. and i love that about so i don't watch a lot of soaps anymore but on the off chance you do kind of pop one on within 15 minutes you're in do you know what i mean you're like i'm i'm, exactly. I'm into the storyline and i'm hooked for you where did the idea that you wanted to be an actor come from don't remember I don't remember because I do spend a lot of time questioning that life choice now now that I'm a grown-up <laughs> I think what a mental thing to do for a job I just kind of always as soon as I discovered it was a job I can, I wanted to do it there was like there was a period where I wanted to be a whole range of different things and then I think I realized I just wanted to pretend to be them for a while which basically is acting so we did like a school play I was 11 and we did Alice in Wonderland and there was, <laughs> I won't go into detail, there was loads of different Alices. I was one of the Alices and I was just sold. I just couldn't believe that you just got to do this thing where you just, 
and he just pretended to be other people and it just sort of seemed really easy I'd probably born out of laziness I was like what's the easiest job I can do <laughs> you you think it's going to be easy but then I can imagine on days where you're filming that is exhausting they, they are long days and I feel ridiculous saying that as an actor you know oh I work so hard but they're, they're long filming days well theatre is a different kind of muscle but mm. filming days are long that I think that you when you're not in the industry you just kind of you, I don't know you don't really imagine it would be like that but they are pretty brutal you know you're out the door at five you're back in you know with barely an evening to spare and it requires a lot of stamina mm. you know and it requires a lot of concentration but it's the acting is the really easy part the, the mm. moments that you're getting to actually do the scene that's the super easy bit it's all the stuff in between and it's navigating your life as an actor and when you're out of work and how tied that is to your self-worth and yada 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 so yeah you know. it's so true isn't it because say, somebody like you you know so I'm jumping forward a bit here but you've had a really really good run and a really successful run you know coming out of drama school then getting landing the role of Peaky Blinders you know and I've I've seen you everywhere on screen you know you've got a really really um incredible CV so it's funny that even somebody that is as successful as you still feels that kind of fear oh god yeah no I I I don't think there's any actor who doesn't feel like they're doing terribly or they're about to be found out. I think it doesn't matter what job you're on or what job you have done, jobs you have done, you're always thinking, oh God, but this is the bit where it all just tails off. Especially as a woman, you know, and a woman in your thirties. And I think that's changing, but you are, you grow up knowing there's this kind of slight cliff edge. So it is a sort of slightly scary thing, but I wonder if that is um, a necessary part of it to kind of keep propelling you forward to you know I mean I don't know I'm constantly saying this is a stupid job I'm going to do something else and then a script comes along and you're like what's that that sounds quite fun do you know what I mean it's it's kind of an addiction but it's with that comes there's there's so much uncertainty yeah it's really interesting that you said that because I was reading in preparation for the interview I was reading some articles that you'd done and in it you you in one of the um interviews you'd said that you'd really enjoyed the roles you'd been offered as you got older and you were less interested in this kind of untenable idea that women only represent youth and beauty can we discuss your own experience? And I say that with a caveat of, I think you're only 34. So, you know, that, that <laughs> 30, feels 30, 35, but I'll 35, take 34. 35. <laughs> but, you know, that seems like in any other industry, it's, it's almost mad to think that would be classed as old. That would be, hopefully, by then, most people perhaps even finding their feet or getting in their stride. No, you're so right. It's, it's mental, isn't it? You do, it is a different world. And I, you know, with... I see it with my casting bracket. I'm 35, so my playing age is, you know, early 30s to early 40s. And I think we do still have a problem with with sort of... We cast younger people to play older characters. Yes. There is this this constant sort of compulsion to, to, to make everyone younger. And I don't know. So it's a... Tr- it's a you do end up feeling... Like sort of 10 years ahead sometimes but I do, I do think it is moving in the right direction and I do mm. yeah I, I did say that you articulated that m- much more beautifully than I did but I do I do like the roles I'm playing now mm. more than some of the ones I played when I was younger and I think that's 
I think that's because we are moving in the right direction and we're starting to understand that women get more interested. <laughs> they're not only interesting when they're in their early 20s, searching for a, for a romantic interest. You know, there is so much more to mine there. And I, the women that I know are so much more interesting the older that they get. So hopefully that's moving forward in that direction yeah. and will continue to do so. And I think I am a more interesting person now and a better actor now. And I hope that the roles continue to reflect that. Yeah. No, it's so true because, you know, I look at myself at... I'm 27 and I look at myself at 16 and, and I look at her and I think, wow, you were so, uh, um, opinionated for your age, but still really nervous in, in the context of life. Whereas now, you know, I feel more able to say to somebody, no, I don't think that, or actually I don't agree with that, or I don't want to do that. Or in my career, I feel more able to take control of, actually, I'd really like to do the interview with Sophie Rundle and I'm going to do it because I, I think I'm able to, despite her career, speak to her and, and to do the proper research so that we can have a good conversation. So I think it's interesting because what that reflects is actually as we get older, we do become more textured and we are finally seeing that in characters, female characters on screen. Yeah, man, exactly that. It's exactly how it is. And like for, for me, just speaking for myself, like becoming a mother has been the most formative experience of my whole life and has fundamentally changed who I am. And, and that's, I'm so interested in that. Do you know I mean, who am I now? And I feel like often, the women that are represented on screen or previously, you know, it's, there's a lot of interest in that kind of rom-com. What's a woman do when she's searching for her place in the world? And we don't, these women kind of, these female characters drop off a cliff edge of like, what happens after you become a mother? What happens to you when you're in your long-term relationship? What happens to you, like you say, when you're in your career and you're getting into your stride? I think women who have gotten to a point in their life where they feel able to say no, that's quite an intimidating prospect, but that's where it starts to get really interesting. Mm. And I think also what we're seeing is not only that change, well, I think that change has only been possible in front of the screen because it's happening behind the scene. And I spoke to Ema Kenny a little while ago, and she was saying that even if we look at statistics for adaptations, it's something like 14% of adaptations are on, on British television have been done by women but only something like 7% are own content, so not adaptations of work that's already successful. Um, and I'll check the statistics on that because I, I might be a bit off. We did do the chat a little while ago. But even that to me seemed wild, that even though there is that progress, I guess we're playing within a field of, of things that perhaps have already been a success. Yeah, yeah, the fear of like authentic original especially it does always come back to that doesn't it but especially as a woman a woman saying something new and bold and daring it's quite a frightening thing and then when it works it's game changing then when you get Phoebe Waller-Bridge coming out swinging with flea bag everyone's like well of course where's this been all our lives and you go well you have to take a chance and you have to mm. crucially listen to women and listen to what they're saying and listen to different types of women not just pretty young things in their early 20s although they're lovely you know there's so much more to be said so yeah it's a i don't have the answers but it does feel like we are collectively starting to understand that and collectively finding a, a way of articulating that and a way of communicating that. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. 
the perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. One of your first big gigs out of drama school, which is is really impressive, um, was the role of Ada Shelby in Peaky Blinders. And the show became such a phenomenon and has a huge following. What was it like being catapulted into that world so early doors in your career? And, and was famous surprise in terms of um, perhaps brought with it some negatives? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think of... I don't think I have fame. I think the work that I do has fame. I think Peaky Blinders is famous, so I don't think I am. Um, and, and, and Peaky's is a strange one because it's kind of like this snowball effect. It, mm. when it started, I mean, I was totally clueless, which I think helped because I was just like, cool. This is one of my first gigs. I'm sure every job's going to be like this where we're making something totally unique and original. But, you know, and it came out and it was kind of this cult show. It was on BBC two quite late at night, you know, and then it, it was only by fan attention and fan support that it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So it wasn't one of these kind of Game of Thrones things or Downton Abbey things where you're like, boom, and you're everywhere and you're across the world. It gathered momentum, which made it very easy to kind of not notice. And then mm. strange things would start happening. I remember I was in Rome and there was a Peaky Blinders themed bar. This was in like the <laughs> second or third series. And I was like, that's mental. What's that about? It's only then you started to look around and then people would start coming up to you and go, Ada Shelby, Peaky Blinders, and you go, oh, okay, yeah, it has kind of become, it, it's become this big thing while I was looking the other way. But it was just total charm and luck on my part that I got that job. And I think, I don't know how, to, I don't know if it would have come my way had I been out a few more years and been a bit more mm. experienced. I think it was the obliviousness that kind of worked for me. I just was like, I don't know. I had that <laughs> lovely, naive thing of youth where I was just like, That's another audition sounds fun. Um, <laughs> So I am incredibly grateful to that show and feel very loyal to it. And I've said that before because it was without it, I think my career would look very different, you know, and I'm, it's been a really wonderful, it's been an amazing thing to be a part of. It's so lovely to be a part of something that is adored by people mm. and has its own world and has its own life outside of the show. That's what's so unique. It's not just that people love the show. They then invent beyond that. And I, yeah. and I love that. And it has spanned you know, the most formative years of my life. It's been sort of 10 years from start to finish. It's crazy being able to see yourself age like that on screen. You know, that that's tricky. Yes. And so many people are like, did they change the actress? Or so many people come to it now because of streaming platforms and they go, oh, I've just started Peaky Blinders. I'm in season one. And then they look at you for a minute and you're like, yeah, I was a baby then. We were all babies <laughs> then, you know. I know. That's so true. And I never think about it of things like that where, like you say, you, you were in the show for 10 years. It's a decade. Mm -hmm. It's an insane amount of time. And especially in an industry where it's really hard to get stuff recommissioned. That show went on and on and on. And what is it like? I mean, do you watch yourself back generally or is that a bit of a no-no? Oh, God, I can't. I can't. And not even in that cute, like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly watch myself back when <laughs> and then I do privately. I do, I'm so mortified that I'm the one on screen. I just, like, as you read it and you have all these ideas about who this person is and what does it look like and what might that be like and you do the scene and it, feels a certain way and then you watch it back and it's your face i just find that humiliating 
<laughs> and you, I guess you can see things that we wouldn't. Yeah. Because I think the brilliant thing about you, you're an absolute comedian. Whatever role you portray, I believe your character. I've seen you in so many different things. And every time I'm like, is that, is that Sophie Rundle? That's Sophie Rundle. But you're so good at absolutely bringing an audience in to what oh, you thanks. do. And we're going to talk about After the Flood in a minute because it is fantastic. <laughs> Thank um, you. But just quickly... Another show that you starred in, which has, again, a very loyal fan base, is Sally Wainwright's Gentleman Jack, in which you play Anne Walker, uh, the love interest of Anne Lister, but I'm sure most people will know that, especially Radio Times fans who uh, absolutely loved the show. For me, I think something that I really enjoyed about that series was how, and we've seen it more generally as well, this ripping up the rule book of how we know period dramas, and it's not doesn't just have to be long-lasting eye glances across a pianoforte and little hand touches. And it doesn't have to be about heterosexual relationships. It can be about a queer love interest. How important is it, do you think, that we're seeing this diversity seep into something like a period drama, which has been so traditional up until recently? Yeah, I mean, it's so important, obviously, and so exciting. And such a breath of fresh air because we you think you know what the period drama format is and exactly that it's lots of sort of wishy-washy waving a rose back and forth and lots of sort of soft lighting and candles and then Sally came along with Gentleman Jack and it, it kind of turned that all on its head and it's just it's boring isn't it when we repeat the same stories in the same format and it all fits in the same box and that was so exciting because it was totally new and it was when I read the script for it. I just thought it was one of the most romantic love stories, regardless of who it, who it is. is it two boys, two girls, whatever. You know, it was, it was just so amazing. And, and that central character of Anne Lister, who Saran is so brilliant at it, it just, it was like the perfect sort of alchemy of, of all these mm. things. And, and Sally, the perfect person to write it because she's so unflouncy period drama. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So it, it just, it worked so well and I think that's why people loved it so much and was a, and was a real she was a real person they they were real people and it's it's that's the success of that show is that they were so nearly forgotten about and just kind yeah. of relegated to history no one really knew about and now they've been brought back to life and so vital and important for people to see themselves reflected on screen whoever they are in all different ways you know it's, otherwise how do you ever understand the world around you if it's just the same stories being told to you you know you yeah you won't realize that other people exist so and I think what was so brilliant about that is that it had all the beauty and the charisma and the scale and the sweep of period dramas that this country does so well we do them mm. so well it had all of that it just happened to be about two women and that yeah. was what felt so important because like my mum sat down to watch it and absolutely loved it do you know what mm. I mean and whereas on paper you she might not have thought to watch something like that it wasn't for you know a certain type of people it was for everyone and that was so exciting well i read in this article from the radio times archive about the history of the character and and how you know anderson had basically been eradicated from family history and it was only through these diaries that came out that and and that were coded that we were able to see her story and i think what's so interesting about that is you know history in in general has eradicated women because their roles have been stereotypically more in the home than outside of it but lgbtq plus people existed then too and and their stories are important yeah absolutely and and they're 
that's that you know that kind of sense of shame I think was really important to add into it that because of because of shame because of embarrassment because of it being unpalatable this extraordinary woman and this extraordinary these extraordinary two women actually because they were yeah. they were two different versions of bravery you know and Lister's this rock star but and Walker my character was for all the people that don't feel like that that you know are yeah. like I am still me I'm still valid I just don't want to come you know kicking doors down I just do it in a different way that yeah. was really really important you know and to see a queer love story against the backdrop of a historical period drama is really important because, as you say, we didn't invent, you know, queer love 10 years ago. It's really important that we see it's human. Mm. So it has existed as long as humans have, and that's really vital. Something that I've done a lot of work on, I did an investigation for The Independent into um, performing sex scenes as actors on screen and I spoke to a number of different people uh, from Game of Thrones, normal people, to talk about their experience performing intimate scenes. Um, and something that I, I think Gentleman Jack does so well is uh, not making the female body, it's not shown obviously through the male gaze and it is uh, not gratuitous. So what came out from this investigation was that often people felt, especially young actors, felt that they weren't able to say no. It was more kind of the culture of the director is God. Um, and secondly, they felt that if they didn't say yes, that their career perhaps wouldn't progress or they wouldn't land the role. What is your experience of that? And how do you think we can keep actors safe if it's fundamental to storytelling? Um, uh, yeah, that uh, resonates hugely. And I, I don't know, it'll be, I'll never be able to tell if part of my experience was just being young and being fresh out. You are a completely different professional when you're new in the industry of course you are because you're inexperienced and you don't have a body of work behind you you don't have experience behind you you don't know the rules so you are much more you kind of you are more naive you are more willing to say yes because you don't know so I don't know if it was just that or if what happened kind of what happened to me in the middle of the, the last sort of 10 years of my career was the Me Too movement. And that kind of changed everything and changed the whole conversation. So jobs that I did before that and jobs that I did after that look very, very different. My experiences are very, very different. And again, I don't know if that's because of that or because I'm just 10 years older now. But I think the conversation has changed. I think that people are terrified now of being accused of exploiting. There is, there's so much more transparency, not only for the performers, but for the crew as well. I think we all forget about the crew. These, these are just people trying to do their jobs in uncomfortable situations. You know, it's, a, but I think that that culture of the director is God and these kind of faceless, powerful people behind the screen is incredibly intimidating. I think putting in, um, intimacy coordinators as a, as an element of safeguarding is really important. Whether you use them in a sort of um, choreography sense is up to you and the director and the other actor, that is up to you what feels more comfortable. But having someone assigned to oversee the process is really vital because it allows for a neutral third party and anonymity if you feel uncomfortable, which is totally vital because the hierarchy is there in this industry and you'll never escape it. And I think that um, being vocal and being transparent about it is really important. Like for me now, when I'm on a job, if there's someone younger than me and they're doing anything to do with sex or nudity, 
I get very big sisterly about it. And I think it's really important to be like, well, listen, I'm 10 years older than you. I've been here. Come to me. You know, I'm going to make sure. So it's about all getting involved and making sure that no, but when I first started, you just would sit in your trailer and think, I God, I hope this is okay today. You know, and who do I call? So it is changing. And I think as long as we keep shining a light on it and don't let it all happen kind of behind closed doors, then it will continue to be done in a healthy, exciting, creative way. And I think that's it, isn't it? It's the, it's again, if there's more women behind the camera as well, the gaze changes. What's so interesting to me, even as a viewer, is how much more aware I am of the position that we're putting people in. So, uh, I started rewatching Game of Thrones recently and, you know, obviously with Amelia Clark kind of saying post filming that she didn't feel that comfortable with the nudity at the beginning, it becomes horrific watching and it's something that I've just skipped because I think I don't want to watch what someone inevitably felt uncomfortable with but I think if there are more women behind the scenes like something like Bridgerton or Gentleman Jack we're seeing passion but in a way that doesn't feel gratuitous and seedy and just a way to look at women's bodies just titillating yeah women are allowed to be sexual i mean it's not that we're not going right no more sex scenes from women but it's can we just do it in a way that isn't just titillating for someone else to watch you know what does it serve what is it telling Mm. us how do we do it what you know and exactly that like what is the experience of the woman how is she enjoying herself it is really vital and i think as you say if there's more female voices behind the camera it's a it's a it's a learning curve isn't it for everyone going no let's not fall into the cliches of oh it looks like this and and also what's the bloke doing in this situation you yeah. know like that's that's how we will move forward and i think exciting conversations are happening and it's really exciting that like you say that you rewatch something that was made 10 20 years ago and you go oh hang on a minute why did we just accept that you know and i think mm. I think for me, like growing up in the early noughties, it was a really toxic time for women. And it's great that we're starting to pick that apart now and go, oh, hang on, actually, we don't feel that way anymore. And there are other ways of telling that story. And there are more interesting ways of of exploring a narrative than just boobs. Yeah, and we don't all look this. I think that's also been something that's really, really positive is real body change as well. You know, we're not all one size fits all um, and seeing that diversity more and more and also that pressure that must put on, on you know, an actor to look a certain way, mm-hmm. those pressures are still there and building. It's really difficult because obviously you're on screen so it is somewhat about how you look but does that have to mean physicality? Can it- mm-hmm. Or can it just be realistic? You know, like mm. I, I spoke earlier about being a mother and, you know, I'm a mother now at 35, but I've been playing mothers since I was 23, you know, and and with my 23-year-old body that had never had a kid holding the baby in my arms and that's got to start changing. I remember when I just had my son when I went back to film the last series of Peaky's, I've spoken about this before, he was four weeks old. And I was terrified and I had like seven layers of spanks on, you know, and I was so worried. And then my partner said to me, but Ada's a mum of two. She's going to look a certain way. Like it's important. And I think that's, that's so it, you know, we've got to start again. I spoke earlier about the aging up process in this industry and we've got to stop pretending because it, it, all it does is damage each other. All it does Mm. is say, you know, especially when it comes to like, I think that's such an important moment in a woman's life. If she chooses to become a mother, what, how you look and how you grapple with yourself afterwards. And if all we're seeing is 20 somethings playing these mums with these incredible washboard abs looking all gorgeous, then of course we're going to feel bad about ourselves and not feel like we 
want to be visible. You know, this is all part of it. And these, and, but then hopefully what it means by the roles getting better and getting yeah. slightly more nuanced and developed as we are starting to change this. I think we just have to keep moving forward with that. Absolutely. And I just watched After the Flood. I was lucky enough to be given the first three episodes and you, in it you play Joanna Marshall, who is an incredibly complex woman. But one of my favourite things about her is she makes some questionable choices that, but she doesn't seem to carry a guilt or shame about caring more about her job or doing things genuinely for the, for the purpose and passion of wanting to carry out justice than apologizing for being a woman or a mother or a wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she she isn't she's she's unprepared to allow herself to be defined by her pregnancy and thus her womanhood, I think. I think mm. she considers herself completely neutral. She's a police officer. I mean, she's a training detective. That's the most interesting thing for her. And at times that gets her into hot water and at times it's a it's a benefit. So, and that's Again, that's really, I think that's one of the interesting things about her is that you aren't always totally on her side. And that's great as well, because our women have to, our female characters have to be fallible, you know, Mm. otherwise they're not realistic if they're just perfectly behaved at all times, you know, like we see a lot of male anti-heroes. I don't think that my character is, but she does things that challenge the audience for sure. And that's exciting because that propels the drama on. In preparation for the role, I wonder if you did any kind of shadowing a Bobby or anything like that. And if you learned anything, if you did do that. I didn't for this, but I did, um, I did on Happy Valley actually. I spent a couple of days. Yes, of course. Of, yes, you? I know. I traumatized a nation and I think they're being re-triggered by <laughs> me and my yes. high-vis jacket. <laughs> I've already, we just announced it on social media and people are like, oh God. Yeah, go on. <laughs> are you going to get hit by another car? Exactly. Honestly, that will never leave my back. Be re- I know you said that they reversed over a sandbag, but <laughs> my goodness, that was, yeah, that was extreme. Know, imagine my poor parents. They were like, <laughs> oh, Sophie. <laughs> Do it. What do, yeah, every time I do a show, they're like, are you being murdered this time? <laughs> or what do we have to watch? Um, but no, but I did on Happy Valley and that really has stayed with me actually and was very, very useful. But with this, so I didn't go out with any, but we had this incredible woman called Lisa with us, um, who was our police advisor basically. And she, she is like, that she needs her own TV show because the story she has to tell. Wow. Years of experience. And now she works with Sally Wainwright. She's good friends with Sally Wainwright. And she does a lot of TV dramas. And she's just there on set anytime you're doing anything policey, um, to just advise you how it would actually be and what it would be like. And she's completely invaluable because all the things you think you know, and especially when you come in to do your police acting. <laughs> and she'll say, I'm not actually quite like that. Or, you know, she'll just come out and be like, oh God, yeah, I remember I, I found a body once and da, 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 And she'll go into these stories. So between takes, you're going, oh, and she'll give you all these little tips to make it real. So she was, I mean, completely invaluable. I think there is some kind of tension at the moment between public and the police in, in some ways, but as British people, I think we are obsessed with crime drama and not only crime drama, but female police officers leading these crime dramas. What do you think about that? I think we are. I think it's a sort of, um, there's a huge appetite for it because we've been starved of it for so long. Do you know what I mean? We've seen so many male sort of, um, detective protagonists. So, it's such a welcome relief to see women in those positions. Um, and I, yeah, I do think there is a real fascination for, for, for 
crime and procedural dramas, not not just dramas, but with podcasts and with, you know, things people, um, true crime documentaries think people, people love it. I, t- I totally understand that kind of appetite as an audience to sit on your sofa and try and work out who done it and try and put the clues together. It's really exciting. And it, it's the, it's the perfect environment for drama, you know, because of that. So, and, and there is a fascination with it and who are the people behind the headlines? I think it makes total sense to me that we, that we, we hunger for these kind of shows. The show also really shines a light on the reality of climate change and what our future might look like. Uh, there's an incredible picture of you submerged in water filming one of the scenes. What do you think it taught you about climate change or, or how we might be impacted by it? And also, what was it like to be filmed submerged in the water? Cold and wet. <laughs> I knew what I was getting myself in for when I read the script and every other page it said that it was raining. But I was still quite surprised by how cold and wet I was every single day. We actually had a problem with, in, on the days that we didn't need it to be raining, it would be chucking it down. And on the days we did need it to be raining, it would be beautiful sunshine, so we were just getting pelted with rain machines. Um, but yeah, it is a huge element of the show is about climate change. And I think it's that's the kind of new frontier of drama that we're having to kind of grapple with. These are, these are the stories we need to be talking about now, but how do you do that in a way that isn't preachy or worthy or too overwhelming? And I think that's quite an interesting that has become quite an interesting byproduct of the climate change conversation that it's almost too much for people at times it's t- it's too overwhelming it's too enormous where do you begin and it can be too worthy you know to, to kind of sit and, and wag fingers climate change is bad yes we know so what after the flood does is just strip it all back to the human element amongst that mm climate change is happening it's this enormous thing what are the impacts on your community and on the people around you and your neighbors on you what does it look like in your day-to-day not in this fantasy land of oh we're all going to have tropical summers and arctic winters what is it looking like today right now because it is happening and i think what is affecting so many people in this country is flooding and then what are the kind of political ramifications of that if we aren't providing a suitable infrastructure for this inevitable climate change that is happening and that's what after the flood is about this community decimated by this flood and what happens afterwards done under the banner of you know a really compelling crime drama but who are the people at the heart of it? And I think that's how it tackles climate change in a way that it allows you to be aware of it and see it happening in your own life without kind of being bowled over by the enormity of it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely leaves, it left me questioning or thinking about it in a really serious way. And, you know, we do hear about the floods that are happening at the moment, but to actually see it played out in a way that makes it, what if this becomes unavoidable? What if this becomes something that we just have to live with? It's terrifying in a way that, you know, I, I live in London. I haven't seen floods like that. I have friends who live in the north who are, have been impacted by it, but not to that degree. And this is perhaps what we will be dealing with in goodness knows how many years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, and the very real, the human element of it, you know, what if you live in a, you live in a, a, a flood risk area? how do you sell your house? How do you move away from that? No one wants to buy your house if you're going to, if it's likely to be, to be destroyed by a flood. So that's where the kind of rub comes in. And that's where Mick, the writer tried to, or has written this 
community drama with all these different characters that you kind of come to understand and love and you see them all affected by it so yeah that's that's the kind of it's a show of two sides really I mean it's about this crime that's happened and it's also about this thing that is impacting our world you appear in this alongside your real life husband who plays your on-screen husband what is it like working with your spouse (laughs) um we really like working together so like it was just really nice we work in a very similar way we turn on we turn ourselves on on the car on the way into the work and we switch off when we go home so we don't take it with us you know so it it, so it was just kind of like working with a mate and we knew we worked together before we were together so it was just kind of like working with someone that you know it made it really easy to play a married couple because you you didn't have to navigate that awkward thing that you do if you've never met another actor and suddenly you're playing a a character with history with them you have to invent a lot very quickly and there isn't a lot of time for that in British telly so it was lovely we got to bypass that and have a bit of a shorthand but um it it was just it was just easy I'm so sorry it's not more interesting it was just (laughs) nice <laughs> and we have a little boy, so it was kind of like a bit of a holiday, really. We'd sit and have yeah. a cup of tea uninterrupted. We were having a great time. <laughs> Bless you. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. It's been really brilliant. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with Dame Emma Thompson or tune in next Tuesday to hear me speaking to Olivia Coleman. Can't wait to see you then. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. Please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>